Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on DAB, Smart Speaker, all on the Times Radio app. We can only fit a certain amount on the podcast because you don't want to listen back to the whole show. But the sort of things that you miss, you miss our mystery voice competition, Think Tank Thursdays, where Polly McKenzie and Rachel Wolf uh, pick over the big ideas of the week. Uh, we look back at uh, Away Days with William Haig. So, yeah, join us if you can live because we loads of stuff uh, that you won't otherwise get. But we've crammed quite a lot into the podcast uh, today. Coming up, uh, one of the most remarkable interviews I think I've ever done, actually, the veteran former Labour MP, uh, Frank Field was told 18 months ago he only had weeks to live. He tells me how he's quite enjoying the fact that he's still here. We talk about politics, we talk about faith, his Christianity and the impact that had in his politics. Being asked to think the unthinkable by Tony Blair and then resigning, his friendship with Margaret Thatcher and being forced out of the Labour Party. So, yeah, genuinely lovely, moving. Uh, fascinating interview with Frank Fields coming up. Uh, but first, as ever, uh, we kick off with the columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, Thursday means it should be night at the Marriott, but we've got no James Marriott today. We don't know where he is. We don't know. We don't know. Maybe maybe he sent a lot of text to Matt Hancock. He's worried about the being leaked. But we have got India night. Morning, India. Morning, Matt. Nice to have you with us. And Jimmy McLaughlin, former number toad advisor and host of Jimmy's Jobs on the Future, Jobs of the Future podcast. Uh, morning, Jimmy. Morning, Matt. Uh, good to have Morning. you with us. We should talk about, let's talk about WhatsApps. Let's talk about WhatsApps. Matt Hancock's WhatsApps. Revealing again, in, you know, interesting communications between ministers. Uh, um, <laughs> it turns out that him and Gavin Williamson didn't particularly get on. Uh, this was it as well, Oakshot. She was on uh, Times Radio Breakfast this morning explaining why she's given all of Matt Hancock's WhatsApps to the Telegraph. This is not about Matt Hancock. I know it's hard for him to believe because everything about Matt Hancock seems to be uh, his world and not the wider world out there. And nor is it about any other individual politician. And nor is it about me, actually. This is about the betrayal of the entire population in a flawed response to the pandemic. And for him to suggest that there is no public interest in releasing details of what was really going on behind the scenes as they took critical decisions that affected the lives of every single one of us and for which millions of people are still paying the price is quite patently absurd. So um, what do you make of that, Jimmy? And as someone who's worked in government, presumably uh, so much of government now does all take place on WhatsApp. Quite a lot takes on takes place on WhatsApp. I mean, I found it it was particularly useful for kind of logistical things, and also as kind of like a last line of defence in terms of where is your box documents that you're supposed to be putting in in seven minutes time, etc. So I don't think really policy is discussed much on there um, as a as a format um, at all, really. But I do think it was obviously exceptional times in the coronavirus. You were limited to the amount of people you could have in a room, etc. So those informal conversations have always taken place in politics and, and government. I often used to think that 90% of my work was done in Downing Street, was often in the corridors in terms of that sort of you know lobbying and, and picking up information and so on. So it's always been part of the way of it. I do think there will probably need to be 
at some point some kind of official guidance in terms of how these records are, are kept and so on because you have a bit of an unequal playing field now with whatsapp have recently introduced disappearing messages and so forth so it is something that's that's going to happen more there isn't much that can be done in terms of of stopping it um but I also think that one of the interesting things is like, does it make more efficient government? And I actually think that sometimes it doesn't. So this isn't a WhatsApp example, but it's an example of artificial intelligence. I used to sometimes send my team or even myself an email to kind of remind myself of something to do or a piece of information that I'd kind of picked up that we should look at. And I remember that what emails started doing after a while was they would suggest other people that you might want to copy in based on who you've emailed before. And so it was this quick <laughs> idea to do, do something. And I thought, oh, well, I will, and I will copy that person in. And there were about five or six people that I copied in. And sort of before long, I'd started this whole sort of chain reaction and sent bowling balls kind of crashing through Whitehall with this sort of literal idea that I'd had in my head. And I think that shows that actually where it can kind of lead to more inefficient government um, at times. So it's both kind of a blessing and a curse for how you deal with these things. So just to the point you make, though, that actually – one of the the thing that emerges from these WhatsApps is you're right. Is it's not very often arguments being played out or conversations about policy. It's I've just come from a meeting where this was decided, or uh, you know, or actually Matt Hancock tweet messaging someone during a what uh, Zoom meeting talking about what Gavin Williamson looks like. So it's not quite not quite the the sort of policy making taking place via WhatsApp. What have you made of this as a, as a non resident of the Westminster Village, India? Um, I find, I mean, I think WhatsApps are the equivalent. I mean, they're sort of slightly stream of consciousness, aren't they? They're not, they're not, they're, they don't exist to be sort of set in stone. They're less, they're less thought out than an email. And they're just sort of people waffling out loud. And then there's always some people who are noisier than others and so on. They're not serious. It's not, a, I mean, I understand, obviously, that in the lockdown, there are useful means of communication. But I find the... I, I just don't think that I, I think there's sort of background noise, really. And what matters isn't the background noise, but the actual policy that eventually um, arises. I find the whole story really extraordinary. Um, and I really, really loved um, Isabel saying that she was um, holding on to the moral high ground. I thought that was pretty remarkable this morning. <laughs> As did I. Um <laughs> uh, And, and I, I mean, to some extent, um, India, I mean, certainly reading today's uh, um, instalment, the fact that the education secretary was worried about schools and the health sector was worried about the wider health of the nation, and you know, the you know, Gavin Williamson saying he, uh, looking back now, I wonder whether I should have resigned as education secretary at that point. So I certainly thought long and deeply over whether I should have gone then. I just feel so personally upset by it. But I mean, he didn't. I mean, he's, he's had to resign for many other reasons, uh, but mm. not, but not on a point of principle. But that's just government, isn't it? It doesn't mean that Gavin Williamson is necessarily right or wrong or. Or Matt Hancock is right or wrong, but these no, decisions absolutely. were being weighed up in the heat of the moment. Absolutely, it was a completely unprecedented situation. They were all everybody was in a panic. Everybody was thinking out loud. Everybody was, as I say, stream of consciousnessing. And I don't think that too much really should be read into the fact that I mean they don't make for reassuring reading. You don't feel that these are highly competent people with an amazing iron grasp of the situation. But if you consider that WhatsApps are just sort of waffling, then, you know, I think I think attributing too much intent to what anybody says in that context is not necessarily 
the right thing to do. Yeah, but I, I suspect there's going to be much more, much more of it as we all try to work out who whose side are we least on. Uh, yeah, exactly. In this, in this. Uh, right, let's move on. So I want to ask you about the, a very pressing matter: uh, attire, how people behave in the House of Commons. Stephen Flynn, uh, leader of the SNP in Westminster. Um, uh, I, I've noticed that he always stands. He doesn't have notes, which I think is good. You should do it off the top of your head and not be reading things. But he does stand with his hands in his pockets when he's asking questions at PMQs, which I asked him about in my interview earlier. The, the Conservatives really don't like that. Uh, they, they shout it at me. Uh, you probably don't hear it on the cameras, but that's the thing that annoys them the most. They don't really listen to what I'm saying. They're too busy shouting, asking me if I'm holding my car keys or something. Uh, <laughs> but the, the fact that it annoys them so much is why I'm now doubling down and continuing to do it. Are you doing it on purpose? So myself and Mary were talking about this. It does, because uh, Mary's obviously sat beside me, it annoys them ferociously. So yeah, I'm just going to keep doing it. Maui Black, the, the deputy uh, lady he's talking about. What do you think of this, India? Do you know, this is going to make me sound so sort of elderly and duchess-like. I'm not into it. I agree, I think I agree and I don't I, know why, because I'm sure I've done it, but I, it looks wrong. I think, you know, it's pretty amazing to be sitting in the chamber, and I think a sense of propriety should kind of communicate itself, particularly as everything is televised. I, re that I mind less about the pockets, although I do mind about the pockets and the slouching and the sprawling and the kind of you know, stand up straight and wear a tie and talk nicely and take your hands out of your pockets. What I really mind about is something that you just uh, mentioned, which is the fact that everybody reads not only their speeches, but their questions. And as far as I can remember, until John Burko, I think this is right, until John Burko, people weren't allowed to do that unless they were brand new and nervous and it was their first, you know, half dozen speeches. But I find it really unreassuring that members of parliament haven't got the gumption or the brain power to memorise, you know, I mean, by all yeah. means have notes to refer back to if you're going to say something very, very long, but they don't kind of seem to have the intellectual capacity to kind of memorise something that they feel strongly about and articulate it without reading it out. I think the reading it out is really, it, I think it does a lot of harm, actually. It just makes them look stupider than... They are. And actually, it, it just makes it renders debates, whether it's on, you know, on legislation, or completely flat. pointless because it just everyone yeah. just stands up and reads out regardless. Yeah. It's, um, what do you make of this, Jimmy? Yeah, well, I agree on that. I mean, you know, people can submit written questions and things like that if that's what they want to do in terms yeah. of technical yeah. details. So I agree that I think that, you know, people should be able to sort of um, speak uh, off the you know, off the cuff, or as Churchill said, you know, I'm practicing this. Uh, I hadn't planned to intervene in this debate. Um, but I think it's, I do, I think it sort of, it diminishes the House of Commons a little bit, actually. And there's obviously a lot that goes on in it. And, you know, politicians have to carry a lot around in their heads at various points. But I do think that um, people People should be able to kind of speak off the uh, off the cuff, and and like India says, you know, you can keep some notes in your back pocket in case you do have a complete memory blank and and so on to uh, rejig it. But I do think that it's it's part of the sort of informality that has kind of crept in sort of post the pandemic i think and it's in lots of places actually it's not just westminster uh it's also kind of in the in the corporate world as well and and i do think a bit of formality from time to time is important yeah, I think well, I've got a, a, some a cosy consensus has broken out. Stand up straight, get your hands out. Of your, I even get annoyed at like best men making their speech at weddings with their bands in their pocket. Mm -hmm. This is all a bit anyway. Um, uh, you're right. We all do sound like we're from downtown. We need to listen to David Cameron's <laughs> mum a bit more. Yes, Matt. exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
put a what was it? Put a proper do, do your tie up. Put a proper shirt uh, suit on and sing the national anthem. He told Jeremy Corbyn, and it's it's exactly. Yeah, it's words that I don't live by myself because I've not got time. Um, India, you've got you have you still got your chickens? Yeah. And how are they? They're very well because they've got a lid on them. They've got um, anti-wild bird netting covering their enclosure, so no bird droppings can fall in. In so my chickens can't get ill, so everything's fine. Um, Jimmy, I'm, I'm I'm making an assumption here, but you don't have chickens. Correct. <laughs> well, um, there's a plan. The government is considering vaccinating chickens against bird flu uh, because of uh, going concern about the spread of the virus, including possibly uh, spreading to uh, humans as well. Jane Merrick is the policy head of the eye who's got the story about the vaccination plan and joins us now. Hi, Jane. Hi there. So you you went to to look at the you were on the front line of the uh, of the avian flu battle. Yeah, that's right. This week we had exclusive access to the Animal and Plant Health Agency site in Weybridge where Professor Ian Brown, we could call him, I guess, the Chris Whitty of bird flu. <laughs> he is essentially leading the fight against, him and his team are leading the fight against bird flu. They're investigating how the virus is changing. They are looking at whether it's moving to mammals. While we were there, there was actually um, a dead otter that had died from suspected bird flu came in. So it just underlines the kind of fast-paced nature of this. And Ian Brown told me that essentially, you know, they're very concerned about this for a number of reasons. It's been circulating globally since October 2021. And obviously, as India says, you know, having to put housing measures on um, on farmed and how, you know, birds that are kept, because it's been spreading, the wild birds have been sustaining this transmission for, you know, more than two years now. Um, so the concern is that it, it could adapt, it could change and move to mammals. And then if you get to mammals, then it could adapt further and move to humans. So Professor Brown told me that they are looking at, there's a sort of a, I don't want to call it, but a sort of a sage group has been set up for bird flu of the top experts. Um, and they are looking at whether they should be vaccinating um, the UK's poultry flock, which is millions and millions of birds. And it's really problematic and it's very costly, but basically what else can they do? Because they've tried everything else. They've tried housing them. They've tried keeping them under strict lockdown since lo last October, and it's still circulating. Yeah, I was going to make a joke about sage and onion or something and chickens, but I won't, I won't do that. I won't do that because it's a serious issue. Um, uh, India, would you have your chickens vaccinated if you could? Yes, absolutely I would. Um, I always wonder, and maybe Jane can tell me, Chickens, uh, intensively, industrially farmed chickens are kept in such incredibly appalling and brutal and revolting. Um, you know, they're all squashed together. They're falling over. They're lying in their own feces. It's all completely horrendous. Obviously, those birds are kept indoors. And so wild birds aren't anywhere near them. But isn't the way that they're kept, isn't that likely to incubate its own diseases? I think that's right. And actually what they're looking at in Weybridge is they're looking at whether bird flu could also be airborne. So the sort of the dust that's mm -hmm. kicked up from the um, feces and the feathers in those in those very intensive conditions. And I think they've been but they've been really hot on essentially keeping an eye on you know, carrying out tests, PCR tests, actually, in, in chickens, in poultry farms mm -hmm. across the country. And where there is a case, they've been going in, they've been culling. Um, massive flocks of birds. So yes, but I think you're absolutely right. Those conditions are that very intensive farming is hugely problematic. But actually, what Professor Brown was telling me is that it's 
goals are the real couriers of this virus. They can go from poultry farm to seabird colonies. You know, last summer, it was reaching seabird colonies in northern Scotland for the first time ever. Um, you know, gannet populations of gannets in northern Scotland are being affected. Um, he's really concerned because it's actually going into um, down into South America, and you're looking at then in Central America populations of the in the Galapagos Islands, really rare species of birds. He's very concerned about penguins and Antarctica getting this. It's an it's an unprecedented situation. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And J- Jimmy, this is one of these things. I suppose a bit like the the. Um covid pandemic we probably don't talk about very much the government doesn't seem very gripped by it until it becomes an absolute disaster in the way that, that jane's talking about yeah i think that's right i mean government will be planning for this there will be places in whitehall that are sort of strategizing through what happens with this i mean you heard james Bethel talking about the sort of cats incident um and sort of pre- preparing that we might have to get rid of all the cats which seems a bit far out there but it is one of those things that government and the sort of bowels of Whitehall will have a kind of strategy plan. I was always quite impressed, actually, uh, when going through these things that, you know, somebody in Whitehall probably has a responsibility for this and is uh, is planning away and has probably had a plan for quite a while. Yeah, this is not something that is new and obviously is now taken at a political level much more seriously because of the pandemic. In fact, you mentioned cats, so I was going to finish off by asking you about that. Let's take a listen to what... Uh... At the height of the pandemic, Health Minister uh, uh, Lord Bethel told Channel 4 News last night. There was an idea at one moment that we may have to ask the public to exterminate all the cats in Britain. Can you imagine what would have happened if we had wanted to do that? And yet there was, for a moment, a little bit of evidence about that. And my views on cats are well known, and I'd be, I'd have been, if, they, if they needed an army of volunteers, I'd have happily helped out. Where do you stand on cats, Jimmy? Well, there's the distinction between cats and dogs politically that yes. cats are awful. Sort of concert well, no, cats are conservative. They look oh, after no. themselves. And dogs are socialists where they need help a lot more. That's no. that's the that's the Is that real? But in India's oh yeah. No, definitely. no, no, I so disagree. No, no. Cats cats belong to guardian readers. <laughs> yeah, who don't have any cats. friends. <laughs> Matt, do you ever get into trouble with your cat hatred? Yeah, but I face I it down. Actually, I'm speaking truth, and I will not be silenced by the big cat lobby. I imagine that Times Radio listeners are dog people more yeah. than they are cat people. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. And I've written about, I've written before about how much I don't like cats, and people have vowed to boycott the show. And I think that's fine. They can go off and talk to their cat, <laughs> but they probably can't find because it's why, out. Why? It's disappeared. Why do they like cats? It's the disappeared. Cat no, the cat isn't there. Home. It's gone to the next door's garden to make it do its business. They're just annoying, aren't they? There's nothing that a cat could do that a dog can't do better. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I don't wish them harm, although they do kill millions and millions of wild birds a year. Kill so all the birds. Yeah. At the very least, they should wear bells. But no, I am um, very much team dog. Jimmy McLaughlin and India Night there. And of course, you can read India every week in the Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my interview with Frankfield. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now, it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Frank Field was born into a Tory household but joined the Labour Party in his teens. He grew up in leafy Chiswick but was the MP for Birkenhead in Merseyside for 40 years. A lifelong campaigner on poverty, Tony Blair told him to think the unthinkable and when he did, he ended up leaving the government. After a life committed to Labour, he was expelled by Jeremy Corbyn. He then took a seat in the House of Lords but within a year, he was told that his cancer was terminal. He's now written a memoir, Politics, Poverty and Belief, about the role of faith in politics and public life, which has been one of the big issues in politics in the last week or so. Uh, Frank Field, welcome to Times Radio. Thank you. Uh, well, they say that timing is everything. And I know that you started writing this book way back in, in 2010, looking at the way that politics was interwoven with your faith and faith into politics. And yet it comes just as there's a been a big national debate about this obviously because of kate forbes uh, and her her christian views and the apparent conflict with her her running to be leader of the smp what have you made of that debate of the tone in which it's been carried out well largely i was silent on my religious views in that i thought they made me look eccentric what's going to be interesting with kate forbes is to what extent, now that there's a leadership contest on, that the membership will have different views to the MP activists? My guess there'll be a difference, and that she'll be much stronger amongst the membership than she is amongst the MP activists. Your your book is about actually the strength of your Christian faith, the roots of it, and how it played out through your politics. But you're you're basically saying that you sort of slightly hid the fact that they were Christian while you were a politician. Yes, I didn't go around kept saying that you know this was an extension of the kingdom, whereby I was genuinely looking at ways of making the world a better place, and therefore, in some sense, welcoming the kingdom. I thought I'd look totally cranky if I did that. So I just got on and kept to a secular language in achieving my objectives, which were primarily religious ones. So explain what those religious objectives were and how they might differ from a secular politician just feeling they were doing the right thing by their constituents or the country. What what difference did it make that your your political motivations were coming from a from a religious place? I think they overlap in that both of us were trying to do the right thing. But mine stemmed from the belief in the New Testament that the coming of Jesus marked something new and terribly wonderful happening in the world. And he talks about his coming, his presence, and bringing things to a conclusion at the end of time. So what I was doing was really fitting in with that time where we try and extend the kingdom, waiting the final days at the completion of history. Do you think it makes a difference coming from a, a New Testament perspective and an Old Testament perspective? A New Testament, which is very much being optimistic, it feels more to me as a 
uh, atheist myself, feels more optimistic and positive and tells the good Samaritan in helping your neighbour in a way that the Old Testament is a bit more judgy. You know, we've seen with Kate Forbes discussions about what it is and sin. Do you think that makes a difference in politics, That the, the difference between sort of a New Testament and an Old Testament outlook? I think both are important and need to be combined so that one of the things I was trying to teach the Labour Party, and to a large extent, thank God it's learnt, is that we are of fallen nature and that we live to be redeemed, but we're not redeemed. And that if we forget that there's a dark side to what we get up to, then we can be misleading in the policies that we propose. For a long time in the 70s, 80s and 90s, Labour was really peddling a belief that we were already home and dry, that human nature didn't really have much part to play, whereas I emphasise that while we are fallen, we can be redeemed. But as you stress, that Old Testament side has an important part to play in modern politics. You you talk a lot about your guiding principle of self-interested altruism, which might sound like a contradiction in terms, but I'm right in thinking that it's essentially the the altruism, sometimes the left focuses too much on the altruism, you know, looking after others even before your own needs, and the right focuses too much on the self-interest and believes the the worst of everyone. What do you mean by the idea of bringing the two things together, and how does that play out then in real-life politics? Well, I think you have to have policies which, even if they don't appeal to all the electorate at the moment, the electorate can see that one day they might benefit from it. So if one looks at national insurance, people pay their contributions now, but not to draw benefit until much later. So it's a combination of one's peddling self-interest or that at the same time that it enables you to be altruistic enough to include those who are in weaker positions. And in particular, in the the welfare system, that means having more of a sort of national insurance system so that everyone pays into it for the greater good, but also out of safe of interest because we might need it later on, rather than increasing what we see, lots of means-tested bits and pieces. Yes, the means-tested side... It's really what undermines welfare in that most people know that they're not, will never be beneficiaries. And so they don't really have a long term interest in supporting that form of welfare. Whereas on national insurance, as you rightly draw, people have a a real long term interest in sustaining the system because, for example, practically all of us know that we'll grow old enough to draw our old age pension. Similarly, sadly, more of us know that we'll be drawing unemployment pay. So then you you spent a long time before you became an MP running the Child Poverty Action Group and looking at all of these these, uh, issues, then obviously as a a Labour MP in opposition. In 1997, when New Labour were elected, Tony Blair asked you to serve under Harriet Harman at the Department of Social Security to think the unthinkable on welfare. And you did. You thought about taking, uh, getting more people to take out private pensions. You wanted a crackdown on benefit fraud, tighter controls on incapacity benefit. 
But it turned out it was all unthinkable. And uh, you clashed with Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and Harriet Harman. And then you walked away. Then you, 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 you quit the government, went to the back benches, where you then stayed for what best part of 25 years. Do you regret doing that? Do you feel like you could have achieved more overall of what you wanted to do if you'd stayed in government? Oh, yes. I do think of myself as a failure in that I should have stayed in and fought more long term. But I had nobody I could go to to talk through the positions in which I found myself. And therefore, I was much liable to these short term judgments. But your question is quite right. It points out a singular weakness on my part. I should have stuck in there and seen what I could have turfed up later. My problem was, as I accepted that Gordon Brown was the senior politician and that he had a means-tested vision against my national insurance vision, that he was a senior person, and I thought that we would run through with his ideas. I didn't believe that they would work, and I believed that when he saw they weren't working, he would at least begin to try the alternative that I was presenting. What I didn't realise was that he would just go on presenting more and more new means-testing. I totally underestimated his ability to keep peddling failure. <laughs> and what about, because Gordon Brown is a man with faith. His father was a Church of Scotland minister. I think after he left office, he talked about how he wished he'd been more sort of forthright uh, in his religious beliefs. So you're both coming from the left and from a place of a Christian faith. How did you then come to such different political conclusions about helping the needy, if you like? Well, I think it stems from my vision about human nature being fallen and yet needing to be redeemed, which the redeeming was part of the political process. And I don't think we started from the same position. I think Gordon, with all his means testing, which opened to endless abuse and fraud, I think he had a different view of human nature to me. But it's an interesting point that you stress that we were coming from the same corner of the the debate to begin with, yet we diverged so much <laughs> soon afterwards. And so if uh, were Rishi Sunak to pick up the phone to you and ask you to think the unthinkable, what do you make of the welfare system now and how would you fix it? I would go back again to the trying to start a national insurance scheme, building on it, and the the first place of building would be a proper national insurance basis for the new care programme, so that we would make sure the new part of the welfare state, which needs to be introduced, is based on more wholesome basis than making it a means-tested basis where people will have a huge incentive to commit fraud. So I would love him to pick up the phone. <laughs> I would certainly talk to him and offer him what energy I've got in devising that new cornerstone for welfare, which would be a national insurance-based position 
for care. And has your your illness, your your uh, treatment for cancer, have you found yourself caught up in that sort of care world? And anyone listening to this who has done will know what a complicated labyrinthine system it can be. Have you found yourself, having thought about it so much in the sort of abstract, have you found yourself now on the inside of it? No, because the hospital deemed that there was no treatment they could give me. So I'm really not involved. I'm just happily waiting for the end. As I fear you may hear, the cancers move round in my neck and make speech rather difficult. But I hope it's been clear enough for people to understand. But I'm just in good spirits, really. Yeah, you really are. You're in very good spirits. Also, you're you're also waiting for crystal clear. I mean, it's interesting, though, because it was some time ago now that you came out and publicly said you'd been told, I think, originally, you might only have weeks to live. That's now been months, years. How how has that been? Because... I can't imagine what it's like if someone sits, your doctor sits you down and says, you know, Mr. Fields, we think you've only got weeks. And you probably go through all sorts of emotions and preparations and so on. And then those weeks become months and then become years. What's that, what's that been like? Well, it's been rather weird that to be given prognosis of weeks and then of months. And now I think it's about a year and a half since I came out of the hospice, and Molly Meacher announced in the debate on assisted dying that if I had been well enough, I'd been in the chamber that day to vote for the bill. But I wasn't. But as you point out, I'm still here and much enjoying doing an interview with you. (laughs) The former Labour MP for 40 years, briefly a minister, under Tony Blair. I'm speaking to him about his, uh, his memoir, which reflects on the influence of his Christian faith on his politics and his hopes of building a new Jerusalem. Well, I asked him if that felt nearer or further away than when he first entered the Commons more than 40 years ago. I can't really get a clear image of whether it's nearer or further. All I know is that we've not achieved it. But I do differ in my politics from Enoch Powell which said all politics end in in failure, I believe that my efforts have clearly resulted in failure, but the the coming of the kingdom is a prophecy to be fulfilled and to be seen by other people, so that although I will die with it being incomplete, I've no doubt at all that at some stage it will be completed. And that will be the end of history. We talked about your relationship with uh, Gordon Brown. Let's let's talk about your relationship with another former Prime Minister, uh, that of Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. You, you knew her well. You were one of the last people, I think, to go in and tell her that time was up at the end of her premiership. Did That's you, right, that she was finished. Did you share your faith with her? I've heard in the past, and you'll tell me whether or not this is right, that you even used to, to pray together. Is that right? No, nothing like that at all. It's amazing how these rumours come up. No, we would have business meetings. Sometimes they'd just be for general discussion, sometimes about appointments, but I would always be keen on lobbying for orders for Camolez. And I remember seeing her um, towards the end of her premiership 
when she'd come back and she was in a right state. Uh, she kept telling me, marching around her study, that she put backbone into George Bush to fight the first Middle East war. You've no idea, Frank, how I put backbone into the man. And I kept saying, Prime Minister, will you come down and sit down with me? I want to talk to you. And finally, she gave up marching around the study, saying that she'd put backbone into Bush. Say, what do you want? And I said, there are two shipping orders going. Could we have one for Camel Labs? And she said, is that all? And I said, yes. At which she then jumped up, started walking around the room. <laughs> I escaped. And then 36 hours later, I came across David Hunt, who was in her cabinet, walking in Whitehall. I thought, oh, God, I forgot to tell him as a rural MP that we'd got the order. And I went up to apologise. And he said, oh, no, 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 Frank, don't apologise. I've seen the Prime Minister for a minute that has come round to sectors of state and heads of department that it's relevant saying Camel Les has got one of the shipping orders. Well done. Now, <laughs> she was high as a kite, walking around, telling me and everybody else she met what a brilliant job she'd done with Bush. And yet she found a secretary and did a prime ministerial minute and listed that Camel Les had one of those orders. And that was what I, in fact, loved about her. her total competence as the person in charge who knew how to run the machine and she used the machine for her own ends which were laid out before the electorate. There'll be some people listening to this thinking it's, it's something quite extraordinary about a former Labour MP from Merseyside talking about loving Margaret Thatcher. Yes well they'll have to put up with it won't they? <laughs> as they did when, when I was an MP my job was to get orders for camel layers. That was the wish that the shop stewards asked me to fulfil at my first meeting as an MP. First meeting with anybody was with the shop stewards. I knew how important they were. And my job throughout the whole of my 40 years was to lobby for orders. And the idea that I would keep back from seeing Thatcher, because other people thought it non-political act to do, struck me as bizarre. Indeed, more than that, deeply worrying. By the end, other MPs were going to see her, and she dressed it up that she opened her study to them on the basis they could come and talk about constituency worries with her. Do you think it's easier as a backbench MP to get things out of a Prime Minister from a different party? Was it easier for you to go and be sort of transactional almost with, with Margaret Thatcher than it was to get anything out of Tony Blair or Gordon Brown? I think you're dead right. I mean, I found it easy dealing with Margaret Thatcher because she wasn't my boss. <laughs> I think it would have been much more difficult had... I've been in the same party as her. So I think you're dead right on that, that you can have a clearer conversation. The argument is much more easily set out 
when you're dealing with the government and the opposition than if you're dealing with the same side. I always found it amazing that Tory MPs couldn't go and deal with Mrs T as I did. <laughs> but then I think the reason for that is the one that you've just outlined. And we should talk about then your, your relationship with a Labour leader that came later. Jeremy Corbyn obviously replaced uh, Ed Miliband yeah. in, in 2015. In 2018, you lost a confidence vote in your constituency over, over Brexit. Uh, you resigned the whip saying that Labour was increasingly seen as a racist party. And then you, you quit altogether. And I mean, you stood then as an independent in Birkenhead, having been there for 40 yes. years uh, and achieved a lot for the constituency of being popular. But being an independent is not the same as being the Labour candidate yeah. in somewhere like Birkenhead. I wonder what advice you might give Jeremy Corbyn as an independent standing in uh, Islington North. Is it possible for him to win, do you think? Well, the difference will be that, unfortunately, people from over the country came up to help my opponent to get me out. I remember going to the pub one evening with a little group of um, supporters that I had and somebody had written on the menu, we've come up here to get you out. What will happen, Corbyn will have all ragtag and bobtail coming from all over the country to help him. So I would advise him to stand. I think he has a good chance of winning. And that, in the long run, might be good for more people in future being prepared to fight when they think the party has been behaved badly to them. Now, I think it must be a real worry for Keir Starmer that here's a guy that he tried to foist onto us as Prime Minister will still be a big feature in the next general election campaign. What sort of Prime Minister do you think Keir Starmer would be and how would he compare to all the Prime Ministers that you've dealt with over the years? I think he'd be very competent. I don't think he'll be in the category of Blair or Maggie Thatcher, but I think he'll be an extremely competent, decent and honest Prime Minister with his judgement clearly questioned and the way he went round trying to foist Corbyn onto us during the last election. Frank, at this point, I should probably point out to listeners, you, you nominated Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership originally, didn't you? So you, you slightly had to foist him on us as well. That the, all the wings of the Labour Party should be part of that leadership debate and therefore help influence where the Labour Party would stand. What I didn't realise that Ed Miliband would be as mad to keep the date open for members to join, yeah. right up almost to the point of polling day itself, and to introduce cheap membership so people could come in for almost half a crown and vote as members. That's what I didn't. And that's what the left quickly saw and capitalised upon. So we got Corbyn. Sadly, the Labour Party didn't defend its membership rules. Just finally then, Frank, but I feel like it's quite a romp in 20 minutes or so through uh, through yes. 40, years of, uh, 40 years of politics. Yes. Um, I suppose you've had 
a little bit more time than you expected to to think about this. But how would you most like to be remembered? What's your epitaph? What's the the thing you want on your on your headstone? Oh well, I know I've already decided my headstone, which is Frankfield and my MP membership of forty years for Birkenhead. But I'd like to be remembered someone that tried to tell the truth. That's a, a, a probably a, a rarer thing in politics these days than we'd all uh, like. Um, Frank Field, we really appreciate uh, your your time today and uh, your your views are you expressed them crystal clear, and everyone will have really appreciate to see them. We wish you wish you all the best, Frank Field. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. I enjoy, I very much enjoyed talking with you, Matt. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>